Amen. A few words I wanted to share with you before I begin the message today. I wanted to let you know next Sunday we have a surprise guest preacher. Surprise. Are you surprised? Surprise guest preacher. And what that means for us is that um, the series we're in right now, we're just going to insert a Sunday there for next week and then kind of move everything down a couple of weeks. So um, next Sunday, the guest preacher who's a surprise guest preacher, I'm going to tell you who it is now so it won't be a surprise then. Uh, next Saturday, a week, a week from yesterday, all of the Pacific Northwest churches in the Free Methodist Church are having a, a gathering to listen to Michael Beck. And Michael Beck is the leader of the Fresh Expressions movement around the United States and is a great leader in church renewal. And he's going to be speaking all day to the Free Methodist pastors and laypersons next uh, Saturday. And next Sunday, he's going to be preaching here. And so we're going to have uh, Michael preach at 9 o'clock and also at 11 o'clock. And so you're going to want to be here to hear Michael Beck next week. He is known around the country as a great leader and innovator in the life of the church and is uh, just a brave and fresh voice for us. So I hope you'll come next Sunday to hear uh, Michael Beck uh, bring the message to us. And then what we're going to be doing um, the week after that, which is the first Sunday in November, November 6th, that's All Saints Sunday. And on that particular Sunday, we pause as a church to remember all those in the life of our church who have died during the previous year. It's a very old tradition in the life of the, of the church universal. November 1st is All Saints Day. That's the day we remember all those who've come before us. That's why we call Halloween Halloween, because it's All Hallows Eve. It's the night before All Saints Day. And so uh, we'll talk more about that later then. But November 6th, the first Sunday of November, that's when we observe All Saints Day. So we're going to have a great time of gathering and remembering and reflecting on the witness and testimony of people who lived out their life of faith in this congregation over the past year. So because that Sunday is very special, we're going to have family members of those individuals who have died during the year. They're going to be here that Sunday morning to be in that time of celebration. We're moving our congregational conversation we had set for the 6th of November. It's going to move to the 13th. We're just going to move it one week later. Pastor Camille is going to talk a little bit about that in the call to action. I just want to let you know what's going to be happening over the next several weeks as a church. So I'm really looking forward to Michael Beck next Sunday. I'll be here, and it's going to be a great message. So I know uh, you're going to be blessed by what the Lord has to speak uh, through uh, Dr. Beck. And so I want to continue this message series, The Abundance Dilemma, by asking another question this week. Last week, we talked about why is it hard to talk about money. This week, we're going to talk about how much is enough or how much is even really enough. Now, there are moments in our lives when we know enough is enough. Maybe you've noticed it when you go to the buffet. Enough is enough. Perhaps you've noticed it in other places in your life experience, like on a hike, when you know is enough is enough. I tried to find a picture of hiking that looked the most like something I would not do. And I think I was successful in finding it. So we know when enough is enough. We also know when enough is enough sometimes with sleep. When we've had too much sleep or not enough sleep, we know how we need to regulate that maybe in our own lives. And there's another occasion when we usually know when enough is enough, and it's when we're playing this game. 
There is not many people around who have played a game of Monopoly that have successfully finished the game of Monopoly. Usually it ends by everyone playing for a couple of hours. You reach a level of fatigue. Everyone capitulates to the capitalist at the table, and the game is over. But there are other moments in our life, other moments when we have a very difficult time knowing when enough is enough. There are many people who struggle with a lot of addictions and issues in their life. Uh, this one you'll chuckle at, but it's still very true. There are people who struggle with gambling addiction. They do not know when enough is enough. There are people who struggle with the use of alcohol, not really understanding when enough is enough, and their capacity to even wrestle with that question of when enough is enough. And I find the same thing is true for us as human beings when it comes to money. Oftentimes we don't understand as well when enough is actually enough for us. So we're going to try to address this question today about how to know when enough is really enough. And instead of looking at it from the standpoint of saying, well, here's all the ways we do this wrong, I want to try to have a different perspective on it today. And the perspective I'd like us to step into is one in which we can learn perhaps how to do some of these things right. And Ecclesiastes offers us an opportunity to see how enough is enough in a really positive and I think an affirming sort of way. Ecclesiastes is a, a fantastic book in the Bible. I'll confess it's one of my favorite books in the Bible. Many people are familiar with the Proverbs. It's a collection of wisdom sayings in the Old Testament. It comes right after the book of Psalms. And Proverbs are typically one-liners. They're little pithy statements of wisdom. Many of you know, like Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Get it? Pithy little short one-liner. True, but short. And oftentimes, somewhat, um, I won't say simplistic, but simple. Ecclesiastes is a different kind of wisdom. It's a different kind of proverb. It's the kind of proverb you write, maybe not at the beginning of your life, but perhaps toward the end of your life. As you're looking back on all of your lived experience as a human being, and you say, after living all these days and of having all these experiences as a human being, here's what I would say really matters and what's really important. And so Ecclesiastes is sometimes called a darker sort of biblical wisdom because it's a little bit more cynical, it's a little more jaded, it's a little more experienced and weathered, but nonetheless true. It is the word of God to us. And so we should hear this message in Ecclesiastes 5 about how much is really enough. And Ecclesiastes 5 deals specifically with money and wealth. And so if we're going to talk about money and talk about how everything may not be enough, well, Ecclesiastes is the place we want to turn. There's an irony in Ecclesiastes of having everything. And we read about it in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning at verse 10 and going through verse 12. And the irony of having everything is this, according to the writer. Uh, the writer of the book says, the more things you have or the more wealth you have, the more kind of disturbed you are. And the, the metaphor that's used here is like disturbed in your sleep, that you don't rest very well because you're worried about the quantity of resources that you might have in your life. And so it causes a level of anxiety and stress and the maintaining of those things. And, and the writer contrasts that condition with someone who's in the opposite condition. 
It says something really important. I want you to hear it. It's in, in verse 12. The sleep of the laborer is sweet, it says. Now, when it talks about laborer here, it's talking typically about like a day laborer, someone who comes and works for a day's wage. That person usually would receive enough funding from working a day's wage to be able to return to their home. They would be able to provide shelter for their family, food for their family, basic sustenance. Person goes to bed, gets up in the morning, and goes back and does the same thing again. The way we would describe this within our own American culture is we would say this is a person who's living paycheck to paycheck. This is a person who has enough for sustenance but may not be able to save or to accumulate in a great form. But notice what the the scripture tells us is that the sleep of that person is sweet. It's sweet for a number of reasons. It's sweet because the, the person is exhausted probably from all their physical labor. And so getting some rest is a good thing for their body. But also they don't carry with them the worries of wealth or accumulation or assets or having stuff. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verses 10 to 12 wants to help us understand this contrast that having it all sometimes might actually mean having less. It's vulnerable to the law of diminishing returns. The more we have, the more we worry, the more we're restless. As a matter of fact, they talk about how the sleep of the wealthy is disturbed, that they, they probably ate too much and drank too much and didn't sleep very well. I can attest to that. Last Saturday night, not last night, but a week ago last Saturday, I went out and had a, had a big meal for dinner that night, my wife and my daughter, and I had too much to eat, and I came home too late, and I tried to go to bed, and I laid there in bed. Oh, why can't I sleep? And that's why, because I was tossing and turning from having had a little too much to eat that night. Tossing and turning. These are the worries that we face. So some questions we might want to wrestle with are these. In what parts of your life do you feel exhausted And to what degree are those causes internal or external? Being exhausted is a really good diagnostic. In other words, look for the places in your life where you're experiencing exhaustion. And then the question isn't about how do I eliminate exhaustion. The question is, is why am I exhausted? What's driving this exhaustion? And what do I need to do in order for that to be happening in my own life? Difficult to do, but important to identify. Exhaustion points to the pain in our life. Just as much as a runny nose probably points to a cold. Pay attention to it. But when we turn to the last three verses of this text that that Ed read a moment ago, Ecclesiastes 5, verses 18 to 20, we find there are three important keys for answering this question of how much is really enough. The first one is live a life of fulfillment. The second one is to live a life of contentment. And the third is to live a life of joy. So rather than talk about how not to have enough, let's talk about what you do when you do have enough so that you know it's enough. Different conversation. So let's go to verse 18 and talk about this living a life of fulfillment. It says in Ecclesiastes 5.18, these words, and I'm reading from a, a different translation of the Bible than you're reading This is from the New American Standard Bible. It says, here's what I have seen to be good and fitting. To eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself and all one's labor in which he labors under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Yes, you heard that right. Here's what's good and fitting. To eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. 
This is rendered in the King James Version of the Bible as eat, drink, and be merry, all right, which is also woven its way into Shakespearean literature as well. This notion of eating and drinking and being merry. Is the writer of Ecclesiastes just inviting you to live this life of self-indulgence? Just live it up. Total recreation. You can answer. Good answer, no. That's not what the writer is saying. What we need to do is understand what enjoyment is in this particular context. Enjoyment happens most often in communal contexts. So when, if you were to think for a moment about eating, drinking, enjoying, like last Saturday night, I went out and ate a little too much to eat. But who was I with? I was with my wife. I was with my daughter. And we invited our receptionist who works in the office, Lori. There were four of us that went to dinner together. You see, what happens is that when we eat and we drink and we enjoy, do we do that alone often, or do we find greater pleasure in doing that in community with people? Enjoyment comes in community and in sharing what we have with others and being a part of groups that can engage in that. So let me tell you a story from the Bible that might illustrate this. There's a story in Acts chapter 16 about how the apostle Paul was in Turkey, which is called Asia Minor in the book of Acts, but it's modern-day Turkey, and God called him to come over to the European continent to preach the gospel. So Paul got on a boat, went across the Aegean Sea, landed in the region of Macedonia, and went to one of its cities called Philippi. When he got to Philippi, he went down to a river, and there at the river, there were some women who were washing clothes in the river. And when Paul arrived, here's what happened. There was a woman named Lydia listening to Paul preach. And she was a seller of purple fabrics from the city of Thyatira and a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And now when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. It's a great story of Lydia. And um, do you notice in that text, what is it she does for a living? Did you hear it? She's a seller of purple. What in the world is that? She makes and sells purple fabric. All right? Now, in the ancient world, purple dye was very difficult to make. It required harvesting the seeds of a certain kind of plant that had to be ground a certain way, had to be heated a certain way in order to yield the kind of color purple that you would want to have in the dye. Then they would put it into a mixture of water and some oils, and then they would dip fabric in it and pull it out, and it would be purple after it had dyed appropriately. It was very costly and very timely. So what do you learn about Lydia as a seller of purple? She's probably a fairly wealthy businesswoman and entrepreneur. She's a wonderful example of this exact principle we're talking about, enjoyment. So when she hears the gospel, her and her whole family are baptized. They accept Jesus as Lord. And then they ask Paul and all of his companions, in this case it included Luke, the writer of the story, to come stay at her house. So Lydia has two things going for her. The first thing she has going for her is she does pretty good business as a seller of purple. The only people who could afford to buy purple were very wealthy people or royalty. Those are the only people who could afford to buy it. That's why we associate the color purple with regalness. 
something kings and queens wear because the purple dye is very costly. So she's financially established. But she brings a second thing to the game as well. Who are all her customers? Rich people. She knows people who have assets and have resources. She knows people who have capacity. It's for this reason that Paul, in his other writings, talks about Lydia as someone who has supported his ministry since he first met her. Lydia becomes one of the chief financial benefactors for the Apostle Paul, paying for his travels, paying for his expenses, networking people she knew with wealth and capacity to support Paul's work of preaching the gospel all over the ancient world. She lived a life of fulfillment. That life of fulfillment is a shared experience, not something that's done alone. When Lydia had an opportunity to engage in the work, she engaged in it with other people in community. She just didn't consume her wealth unto herself. She involved others. So some questions we might want to wonder about. When did you at last enjoy the fruits of your labors with others? And how have you experienced fulfillment this week? Live a life of fulfillment. Ecclesiastes 5.19 gives us a second truth. Live a life of contentment. It says in Ecclesiastes 5.19, Furthermore, as for every person to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has given him the opportunity to enjoy them, to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. You hear the three things, enjoy them, receive his reward, and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift from God. This is about a life of contentment. Contentment, friends, is elusive. And the reason it's elusive is that billions upon billions of dollars are spent all the time, convincing you that you are not content, that you need another thing, you need to have this, you need to move here, you need to drive that, you need to have one of these. And so what they do is dangle contentment like a, a carrot in front of you that you can never really get to. The whole notion of modern marketing and consumerism and commercialism is to make, make contentment look close, but it's really not. The goal is to keep you spinning in the game of seeking contentment but never getting it. That sounds evil. <laughs> because it is. What happens is for us as human beings, we search for the meaning of our life and all of these drives for contentment instead of looking to God for contentment. Now, how does God express contentment? Well, let's go to the beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1. There's a beautiful story at the beginning of the Bible where God, according to the story, creates everything in how many days? It's a quiz. How many days? Six is the correct answer. So in six days, God created everything, and it says, saw that it was very good. And then what did God do on the seventh day? Rested. That the word there in Hebrew for very good, like it was God looked at everything and it was all done, it was very good. That's the same Hebrew word for contentment. In other words, God for six days created everything, and then God said, I am content. And then what did God do? Day seven. 
rested. Rested. God in that story in Genesis chapter 1 is demonstrating to us what contentment is. You work hard, you experience contentment, and you rest. Is there anyone here that honestly thinks that you can outwork God? Even God works for six days, and on day seven, God says, I'm content, we're good, and then takes a day off. The thing I'm puzzled with as, as a Christian is I remember as a child growing up in the 1970s when a lot of things were closed on Sunday. And there are certain parts of the country still in the United States you can go to where things are closed on Sunday. And so now I'm used to, as a 54-year-old man, stuff being open all the time. Sunday's just like any other day. But here's what annoys me with Christians is they sit around and wring their hands. Oh, why is the store open today? Why is the restaurant open today? They get really upset that the culture's kind of shifted away from this value of having everything closed one day a week. They go, oh, this is terrible. Our culture's decaying. Everything's open. Friends, nobody made you go to the store, did they? No one made you eat in the restaurant, did they? No one forced you to go work instead of resting that day, did they? Did they? We cannot outwork God, nor can we outgive God. If God rests, we can rest. And what we learn from just even a light reading of the Bible, that the connection between Sabbath and contentment is there and powerful, and even God does it. Do you know in the Bible, there's only one law that God obeys? It's the law of Sabbath. That's it. Because it's the most important and foundational of almost all the other things put together. There's a sense in contentment and rest go together. That's part of God's purpose and plan for human existence that we find rest. Now, you may not be able to find rest on a Sunday, but maybe you can find rest at another time in another way in another space, but find the rest because that's where contentment exists for us. That's good. That's good enough. Some questions to wonder about. When did you last experience a sense of contentment? And what is one step you could take this week to carve out time to rest and be content? Live a life of fulfillment. Live a life of contentment. And the third one, live a life of joy. Live a life of joy. Listen to Ecclesiastes 5.20. It says, for he, this is the rich person, will not often call to mind the years of his life, Because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. I love that verse. God keeps us busy with the joy of our heart. Jack Stotts tells a great story that happened to him when he was pastoring a local church. Jack Stotts later went on to become the president of McCormick Theological Seminary. But before that, he was the pastor of a church in Texas. And Jack Stotts said something really interesting in this story, that when he was pastoring the church, they received in the mail a a financial gift from a a single woman in the church. 
And the gift was very substantial. And they were a little bit puzzled about how she could give so much money to the church. So Pastor Stotts met with the stewardship committee, and they talked about the woman who had given the gift. They all agreed this was beyond her means. They weren't sure how she was able to do this. They knew that she lived in a, in a, a ramshackle house and didn't really have a, a good car to drive, and that she would often come to church wearing a very similar wardrobe week after week after week. They knew this was not a person of great means. And so the stewardship committee decided that the pastor would go to her house and explain to her how they thought the gift she had given was too much and that they wanted her to reconsider. So Jack Stotts packs up, goes to the woman's house and sits down in her home. And he tells the story about how he sat in her living room talking with her. And as he was sitting in the room, he could hear the wind whistle through her house. And as he listened to the wind whistle, he looked at her and he said exactly what the stewardship committee told them to say. This gift is too much. We're really concerned for your well-being. We're not sure you should be doing this. And then he writes the story in this way. A look of dismay came over her face. Would you take my joy away from me? She asked. Would you take my joy away from me? Friends, happiness and circumstance have little to do with joy. Joy is a, a state of being. It's actually a state of mind. It's an attitude. It's a way in which we can experience the fullness of God's blessing even when the happenings are not good. It's quite possible to be filled with joy when the happenings of our life are a disaster. Joy is not about happiness, happenings, or circumstance. Joy is a state of being apart from that. I mean, what do we read in the Bible about joy? The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross. What do we read in the Gospel of John? Jesus telling his disciples, I've come that your joy may be complete and that my joy may be in you. Jesus says this to them hours before he goes to the cross. See, the relationship we have with joy is unusual because oftentimes we dwell on the happenings and the circumstances of life. Brothers and sisters, we live in a world addicted to happiness, but a world for whom joy is absent. Addicted to happiness, but joy is absent. And for the followers of Jesus, something has got to shift in that. It says that God keeps us busy with the joys of our heart. Isn't that a profound promise? When I was pastoring a church in Orange County in Southern California, we used to take a mission trip every year to Mexico. And uh, we'd go over uh, uh, the long weekend in January and we'd travel down to Ensenada and uh, we would build houses and we would do a vacation Bible school for children in the community. And we did all of it in partnership with one of the churches in uh, Ensenada. So uh, when we went down one of the last years I was there, our church had raised about $50,000. And we built eight houses in four days. And we did a vacation Bible school for about 300 children, all in this really impoverished area outside of Ensenada. And I can tell you that as a congregation, 
Uh, and as the pastor of the church, we had been working on houses and working with kids all week. We were totally spent, totally exhausted. We smelled, we were dirty, and uh, completely filled with physical fatigue. And did I mention we were $50,000 poorer? But never in my life have I seen joy like you see there. When you see that family that's living in a house made out of garage doors move into a house where they can function and raise their children, the joy is overwhelming. The circumstances and the happenings, poverty, squalor, you name it, but joy. Joy for us, joy for them, joy everywhere. The pastor from the church would come and pray with the families when they moved into their house, and oftentimes people would come to the Lord just in those moments. They would, they've never seen such an act of generosity before. So wives and children who were believers, but the husbands weren't, they would come and the house would be given to them, and they would see this generosity given to them. I've seen those husbands give their life to the Lord right there because they've never seen that kind of joy before. We live in a world addicted to happiness but for whom joy is foreign. So a question we might ask about joy is this. Describe your state of joy today. And what can you do this week to get more in touch with joy in your life? You know, there's a secret of knowing when enough is enough. And when enough is enough is when you have joy. And joy comes from living in a beautiful cycle of gratitude and generosity. We're going to talk about that on November 13th, this wheel that spins between gratitude and generosity and how it goes round and around and around. And it's one of the most beautiful blessings that God gives to us as human beings. Friends, enough is enough when we have joy, when we have contentment, when we have fulfillment. And if if those qualities are, are missing in your life some way today, friends, you you gathered today to worship a God who has found no greater joy than to give his own son Jesus Christ, so that our sins can be forgiven and that we can have abundant and eternal life in him. What a great story. God finds infinite joy in giving. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. We serve a God who finds joy in giving. And so the same must be true for us. If we come and receive these elements and take communion and have this time together, we're saying to God, God, I can't outwork you. God, I can't outgive you. You've given everything for me and for this world. Wow. Friends, we have a name for that. It's called the gospel. And it's the saving message of Jesus. And nothing gives God greater pleasure than to give. And we're never more like God than when we do the same. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the the gift of Jesus. That God, in your ultimate act, you gave us Jesus, who lived and died and is raised from the dead. There's nothing we could say or do 
that can somehow fill up the infinite love that you've expressed toward us. We thank you, God, for your generosity, your gracefulness, your mercy, for all the ways in which you shower upon us joy, contentment, and fulfillment. So, Lord, help us to learn how to step out of this terrible, terrible race in which we've found ourselves and just take a moment this day to rest, rest in you. This morning, I'm going to invite the band. I want you to just play some music quietly just for a minute. I'm just going to give you some time to pray and pray and ask about how that joy can happen in your life this week. Let's just pray and listen to the Lord.